This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 222, and I'm talking with Melindy Elmore. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Lily Trotters, my favorite compression sock. They've been supporting this podcast for years now, and if you haven't tried them yet, now is the time. Lily Trotters are functional, they're fashionable, and they get the job done. They do exactly what you need them to do. Along with their compression socks, they recently launched their crew sock. These socks are built with performance compression targeting the forefront to the lower calf, and they help prevent swelling, blisters, and improve circulation. They're perfect for hot days, trail running, hiking, cycling, or Anytime your lower leg needs a little extra protection. Check out everything Lily Trotters has to offer. I actually see right now they have a really cute Valentine edition compression sock. And you all can save 25% off any regularly priced items on their website when you go to lilytrotters.com and use the code ANOTHER. Again, you'll get 25% off any regularly priced item on their site lilytrotters.com. Use the code another. All right. Melindy Elmore. I am so excited to have Melindy on the podcast today. She just broke the Canadian record in the marathon at the Houston marathon in a time of 2:24:50. This was a huge deal. I am just so excited for her. This was only her second open marathon. She ran her first open marathon And I say open because she's done two full Ironmans. So she's done two marathons within an Ironman. But last year at the Houston Marathon, she ran her first open marathon in a time of 2.32. So she was only seven months postpartum then. So clearly a lot of training has gone down since that race. And she walked away with a huge PR and the new Canadian record for the marathon. In this episode, we do get to talk about the race, but we get to know Melindy as well. She's had a really unique career. She ran for Stanford. She was a five-time All-American. She represented Canada in the 2004 Olympics. 2004, did you hear me? 2004. And now she is hoping that she will get a spot on the 2020 team in the marathon this summer. The system for selecting the team in Canada is a bit different than here in America. So we talk about that. She shares with us how that works in this episode. And and I really don't want to glaze over this because this was a big part of her career as well. Uh, Melindy competed in Ironman and half Ironman triathlon for several years after her track career. She got really into the 70.3 distance. But get this, she debuted her Ironman in a time of 8.57. That's a so fast and uh, was third place in that race. Melindy is the mother of two boys and has a very full life. She's a coach as well. So this is a really exciting time for Melindy. And as you'll hear her say in this episode, this race where she ran the 224.50 in Houston was 25 years in the making. 
Big congrats to you, Melindy. All right, friends, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's one of the best ways we can grab new listeners for this show. And this show is part of the Sandy Boy Network. Check out our other podcasts, the Up and Running Podcast and the Illuminate Podcast. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Melindy Elmore. Well, today on the podcast, we have Melindy Elmore on the show. Welcome to the show, Melindy. Hi. I'm so excited to have you after such a big weekend. Congratulations on your accomplishment in Houston this weekend. Thanks. Yeah, it was great. Are you super on cloud nine still? (laughs) You know what? I am, except that it's funny how you just sort of get sucked back into everyday life as soon as you get home from a race. So it's like, okay, back to back to things. So, I mean, it's a super great memory and I'm really excited with how how things went. But um, life marches forward now. Yep. Go home, take care of kids, clean the house, totally, do all totally. the things. Yeah. No groceries, no milk. Okay. Got to go to Costco. <laughs> Just run a 224 marathon, but I still have to do the regular household things that everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have had you on my list. I was actually recently brainstorming some people to have on the show. And after I had Dina Evans on my show, Um, She had mentioned your name and I was like, I should really have her on the show because I've had a couple Canadians on, but not as many as I should. And um, I was kind of watching what you were up to. And I just had no idea you were about to run this insane marathon in Houston. And then I thought, okay, I guess I had her on my list for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think for a lot of people, it probably Seemed like a surprise, but um, it's kind of been the target all year to run about that fast. So for us, it was just getting it done. Yeah, that's what I saw. I saw um, somebody had an article or you posted something and someone had asked you, did you surprise yourself? And you said, no, I thought I was in shape for, you know, 224, 225. And you really hit that right on the dot. Yeah, we're pretty good with predicting paces now. Actually, last year when I ran Houston, I knew I was going to run about 232 and that's what I ran. And and again, yeah, out of, you know, from the outside, it looks like it comes out of nowhere. But when you do the right training and you follow the process, then it, it's, it can be fairly predictable. Yeah. And you knew the course because you did it last year. Yes. Although I was very surprised doing the, the race the other day, how many parts of it I honestly had forgotten or were completely different in my mind. Oh, really? What was so different mm-hmm. about it? Just random well, stuff? For, yeah. Like, for example, even the out and back at the halfway or not like, it wasn't literally an out back halfway, but um, where we hit the 21K or the half marathon part, there's like this little turnaround point. And in my mind last year, because I was dying at that point, I went through a really rough patch. It was so much longer than it was. And it ended up only being about 100 meters. And in my mind, it was like a kilometer. <laughs> like la- last year, you were dying. This year, you weren't. Yeah, exactly. So this year, I hit it and I was like, oh, this is no big deal. Where I remember <laughs> last year... It just seemed to drag on forever, and I could see people coming back the opposite direction and feeling like I was never going to get to the mats, and I swear they changed it this year because it was no big deal. Was it weird or hard at all starting everybody together? Because didn't the half and the full all start together? Oh, yeah, totally. So about 500 meters into the race, I get off the line and feeling pretty good. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is good, and I wasn't looking at my watch for for my pace yet because you're in the buildings, and and, as people know, your Garmin isn't always right up to date, or GPS isn't always right up to pace, and then I look over on one side, there's Natasha Wodak, and then I look over on my other side, and there's Sarah Hall, and they're both doing that. (laughs) Yeah, you know. 
okay, just, it's time to just chill out. It's, and it honestly feels like for the first couple kilometers of that race that people are running a 5k road race. You're like, slow down people. This is a half. This is a full. Let's just, let's just chill out a bit. But people are sprinting off the line. Wow. That has to feel weird too, because until you settle in, I mean, did you have a pretty good eye on which women were doing, obviously you knew Sarah and Natasha were doing the half, but did you have a pretty good eye on the rest of the field who was doing the half and the full? When did, and when does that split? When does the half and the full split? Well, for one thing, our bibs are different, so that helps. Um, and then we are all together for um, seven miles, so wow. it's quite a long ways, and it's quite crowded. In fact, I almost fell down at about two k in because it was just so clippy, and there's not a lot of room. Um, and I, you know, I clipped heels with somebody. Um, so yeah, no, there are a ton of people, and it really, honestly, takes five or six k to get your bearings about you and to just settle down into where, into the group that you're with because there's a lot of moving around, a lot of people trying to get their position. Um, I almost missed the first aid station at five k because I was still so distracted with just finding a clean line, and then I realized, oh my goodness, I can't start skipping bottles at you know so early in the race. Let's uh, let's pay attention here. Yeah. So it's kind of cool that way because it's distracting, right? You're 5K in before you've even had a chance to think that you're doing a marathon. Oh, good point. Yeah, for sure. And seven miles into the half. I mean, that's crazy. They're like turning around going home at that point. I know. I know. And we had some people who were running in my pack who were doing the half. So it was kind of nice to have some extra bodies. Oh, that is nice. Now, when you say the first aid station, you had like a did. I don't know how Houston sets everything up. Did you have your own bottle station for the elites? Yes. So every five kilometers, we have our own, our own station. Yeah. Okay. And out of curiosity, what, um, what's in your bottles? Um, I use a Canadian product called F2C and they're really good, really clean products. They're, you know, water tested and, um, they're made locally in Canada, which I really like and, um, with really good, good products. So you started using them in triathlon. They're really big in the triathlon world. And then that's, that worked for me. So I continue to use our products. Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. We've, um, kind of watched if, if anybody's paid attention to your career, it's like track athlete, triathlete, and now you're this marathoner who's running a 224. So I would love to, um, gosh, walk back. You have been in this for a long time. Does it feel like a long time or does it feel like you blinked? Yeah. I mean, time marches forward. Right. And, and I just, um, I certainly never would have imagined that I'd be here at this point now in my life that I'd be thinking of making another Olympic team and running the marathon this competitively. Um, so it's, it's really cool, but I just, I really like the process of sort of reinvention, new challenges, trying, trying new things, getting excited about doing something that I haven't done before. So every couple of years I kind of, it's almost like I get a little bit bored with what I'm doing. And I think, okay, what's like my new, my new thing that I can, can, um, bite my teeth into. Yeah. So, uh, you were a really talented runner growing up, ran for Stanford. And that's why I mentioned Dina Evans earlier mm-hmm. for those listening. Cause she coached you there five time all American at Stanford. Let's talk about going pro after that and kind of what your life looked like. You ran in the 2004 Olympics, um, in the 15. So what did that look like transitioning from college to, to going professional? Well, you may may or may not know, but I I had sort of a rocky career at Stanford. I had a lot of injuries, and I didn't really feel like I ever reached my potential in the NCAA. So I I graduated in 2003 and and decided to move to Calgary, where where Mike Van Tegum lived, who had coached me in high school, and we had stayed in close touch all through 
my university years and I always came home in the summer and trained with him. So I decided I wanted him to coach me again. And, and of course I hadn't, you know, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a contract. I just wanted to run. So he was really gracious. He and his wife invited me to, to, um, stay in their house. So I lived with them for about 14 months and, um, went back to university to get my master's because I figured I had to either work or go to school Mm -hmm. and school was more flexible than working. (laughs) And, I decided at that point to really um, focus on my goals of becoming a better runner because in university I kind of did everything and was all over the place and had a great time and and but I didn't put my all into running so I really focused my my I narrowed my focus to to seeing what I could do in running and within about a year I dropped from being a 410 runner in university to being a 402 runner on the start line at the Olympics so. Um, I kind of learned that sometimes when you do focus, you know, you can, you can make, you can make some uh, improvements. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So you lived with them for 14 months and then what happened? Well, actually then I um, bought a condo because I had done so well running that I had saved every cent I had made and, and was excited about um, branching out on my own and bought a little condo. And uh, that didn't last very long. I really wanted to live alone because I'd never lived alone before. And I like to keep things super clean and tidy and decorate, you know, my own way. And then I met my husband and he um, announced pretty quickly on that he was moving in with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. And so then we've been, been living together and we got married and all that sort of thing. And he is not, really tidy and clean. So, um, we've learned to adapt, but uh, I had a few months there where I had, was in control of the dishes in the sink. Oh my gosh. I know he's an athlete too. How did you guys meet though? Yeah. Through running through, we, he was a 1500 meter runner. He had retired actually by the time I met, but he was still involved in the sport and he was, had opened up a running shoe store and with some friends and, um, you know, it's a small world and you go to, you go to the post race parties and, and dinners and whatnot. And you so socialized. So I just kind of met him that way. And he's like, I'm moving in by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, we had been dating about a year, but we lived, uh, I lived in Calgary and he lived in Victoria. So it was, it was getting a bit tedious because we would always have to travel to see each other. So he, he made a, he made a leap and he said, I'm, I'm going to pick up and move to, to Calgary and see where we can take this. And uh, thankfully it worked out. So you ran in the 2004 Olympics. Talk to us about that time of your life, you know, being a professional runner, having sponsorships and what the next few years looked like. Well, yeah, 2004 was kind of a a remarkable year. It was sort of like a purple patch year where I could, I just was so in control of my running and my training that everything clicked really well. Um, and winning the Canadian trials in the world, in the Olympic standard time of 404, I'd run 402 in Rome and then ran 404 at nationals. Um, and making the team was like a, a dream come true, of course. Um, and went to Athens and unfortunately didn't have the race experience that I was hoping for there. I think I was just a little bit tapped out in the year and tired and had sort of peaked and came up a bit flat in the rounds. Um, so didn't have a gear change with about the last 200 meters to go when everyone kicked. And it felt a little bit, you know, it was quite anticlimactic walking off the track. Um, but I, you know, at the time I thought, oh, well, I'll make it back in 08 and, and, and now I've learned, um, but really, truly, the experience of walking into the Olympic Stadium is is mind boggling. Like, just the sheer energy and the lights and the noise and the the excitement is um, definitely one of my most uh, poignant memories of my career. Yeah, you know, it'll be a much different experience if you run 
the marathon because you it's yes. not the stadium, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit unfortunate that we've moved the marathon from Tokyo to Sapporo because we would have had the Olympic experience of finishing in the stadium in the marathon in Tokyo. And, and now it'll be very different. Um, but you know, there's pros and cons and I'm not in control of it, so that's fine. But, um, yeah, it is definitely different being in a stadium versus out on the roads. Do you know all the reasons why they moved in? Or is there is there a short is there a Cliff Notes version? <laughs> I think I think a lot of it came from um, from Doha, and you know the women's marathon in Doha had a lot of people struggle in the heat, and they were trying to avoid any kind of catastrophe. And in uh, Tokyo, with the anticipated heat to be about 33 degrees Celsius. So what is that? That's close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit and, and an excessively high humidity really early in the day. So I think the thought was if they moved it north that they could maybe control some of the problems from the climate. Yeah. How Do you know how much further north that is? Um, it's about, I think it's about 800 kilometers and um, someone might know better than me, but it's it's, it's a long ways. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's definitely a flight or a, a, a day's journey on the on the train, I think. Yeah, that's no fun because then you're not like in the area that all the other athletes are. Yes, I know. But you know what? Um, I'm at the point now in my career where I'm not, I don't worry about those things. Sure, because sure. I can't control them. It, it would be, there's there's pros and cons. I mean, the, the one, the, pr- the pro side of it is that it's excessively expensive in Tokyo, especially during the Olympics. So now I'm looking at, you know, my family coming over and it's like, oh, okay, well, we can maybe afford for my parents and my children and my husband and possibly some friends or other family members to come over and be there. And the fact that they don't need tickets to be on the course, um, if they can find a reasonable, reasonable Airbnb to, to, to hang out at, then, then that would be really fun where I think Tokyo, I might be on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Tokyo would be really hectic too, probably. Um, can you talk about 2008 and what happened then and then what was next in your career? Right. So for 2008, I would just uh, sort of preface it with um, the year prior to that in 2007, I was having a really strong year and and I'd had a few not such great experience in 05, 06. I was kind of, I didn't have the same year as 04. 07, I was starting to really hit my groove again and run really well and be competitive on the the international circuit. Um, But I had this foot that this, this ankle that kept locking up on me and it got worse and worse through the season to the point where I could hardly walk on it. And I made the world championship team and we were in, um, Singapore and I couldn't, I couldn't run anymore. And I went in for an MRI and I had a stress fracture in my navicular, which, um, a navicular is kind of a cursed bone for runners. It doesn't heal very quickly and it's, it's hard to have it heal. So we decided well, it wasn't even that I could have raced really, honestly. Um, so they flew me home and I thought, well, it's an Olympic year. I need to rehab this, um, as quickly and aggressively as possible. So this was in August of seven and I knew that we were a year from the Olympics. So time was very critical. Um, and it took me basically eight months to be able to run again without pain. I made a few attempts to start running and every time I started, it would flare up again. Um, and in hindsight, I should have had surgery done, but we were trying to avoid that. Um, so leading into 08, I was kind of under the gun to get my fitness back. I'd run 405 the previous year. So I had Olympic standard, except that for Canada, um, we needed to have an additional performance that exceeded IAAF standard, which was in my opinion at the time and still very, uh, just wrong. Yeah. It was was really, it, it made it really difficult to actually train when you had to peak to make the team. 
I bet. Yeah. So, um, in about April of 2008, I was just starting to run again and it was like, okay, you've got two months here to get your fitness in shape to make the Olympic team. And, um, it came really, really close. I had to run my proof of fitness had to be, um, four Oh seven zero zero. And I ran four Oh seven, three times in three days. And the fastest one was four Oh seven Oh seven. And I was 07 seconds short of being named to the team. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, but I was qualified I, because, because the IAAF would include times from the previous year. So I was selectable, but I wasn't by my own federation. Um, and so anyhow, then uh, I was pretty devastated, honestly, because it, I knew that I just needed it. And it, the Olympics are still two months out. I knew, knew that having been injured for so long that I was just coming back into form Um and then, you know, the, the, I think the real like nail in the coffin was that two or three weeks prior to the Olympics, there were eight women who, um, who were uh, not tested positive, but were, were found guilty of doping violations. And this was sort of the beginning of the systemic doping problem in Russia and some Eastern European countries where there were analytic findings that it wasn't their samples, basically. And so suddenly the women's 1500 meter field went from having heat semis and finals to straight semis because the, the field size had been reduced so dramatically. Wow. Yeah. And, and it just was like, it was just really, really frustrating to hear that at the time, because we knew that there was a doping problem going on and that those times that those women had run were impacting the standards that we need to run. And then when, you know, and then our federation is making us run even faster than that. So it felt really, really just frustrated by the whole process at the time. And, and, um, so yeah, not making 2008 was really hard in so many ways. How did you, like, what did you do in your life at that point? How did you get yourself out of that? I don't know that I did the best job of getting myself out of it. I think between 08 and 2012, I tried really hard to get over the injury and get over the frustrations, but, um, uh, it, it kind of, it kind of sapped some of the joy of it in a way. Cause it just felt like from our Federation perspective that we had to run these a plus standards to make teams. And then we've got this doping problem going on that no one's acknowledging, even though, you know, my friend and I, um, Hillary Stellingworth, we kind of put together a big, big sort of investigation that, that we had drawn from, from a number of sources to send out to our Federation saying like, we need to look into this. And I'm so glad that now we have, um, Wada and mm-hmm. um, all these all these bodies looking into this problem, but um, yeah, I, I think I kind of got got a little bit just frustrated by the situation, and it lost and I lost a bit of the joy of my running and just running free and enjoying it for on my own terms, and that's kind of where I left off in a way. And and of course now I've I have uh, I have some distance that I can get back into it and and. and Enjoy it on my own terms again. What a cruddy way to walk away, though, at that point. Like, that's so frustrating and just, and it's not in your control. You know, you can control the things you can control, but that was out of your control. That, that sucks. Yeah, yeah, it did. And I mean, it, it's just really wide. It's a really, the doping scandals were really wide impacting. And I know we talk about, you know, people who miss medals and this and that, but it also impacted whether you got into the meets, yeah. the top meets to get the times that you needed to run, to get the standards, to make the teams. Um, 
and the money aside, I don't, I never ran for the money. I didn't care about the money, but just, um, not feeling like, like it's an even playing field for opportunities to compete was, I think the toughest thing. Yeah. Like there wasn't even a chance at that point because of the, the, yeah. everything was so, um, skewed because of those times they were running. It, it, precisely. It was so skewed. And then our standards were skewed and the positions in the big meets were, were, were favoring people who had been taking these and I can look back my friend and I looked at a list of all the top performances and it was it was very very significant the number of people who had question marks next to their names Mm. that's so disheartening honestly as a fan of the sport too it's just one of (laughs) those things where it's just it's I mean it's like in cycling it's just really um you know when all that was happening and and now I feel like it's talked about so much more in running which is good it's talked about because we need to be acknowledging this and fixing the problem but um it just makes you feel so jaded yeah yeah for sure so in we're gonna walk back to 2004 did you you know you at that point your sights are set on okay I'm gonna get back from this I'm gonna come back I'm gonna compete in the Olympics in 2008 and and have the race I maybe didn't have in 2004 but did you ever think in 16 years maybe I do this again Oh, oh, no, absolutely not. You know, yeah. no, I mean, I had thought I would run 2008 and 2012 Olympics. And my goal had been to, um, to break the Canadian record in the, in the 1500. And, um, I, I, you know, I ran 402 and the record when I was running was four flat. Um, Gabriella, uh, Stafford recently ran 356 this summer. So she crushed it. But, um, I totally identified with being a middle distance runner. I was a low mileage person. I liked, I liked anaerobic workouts. I liked running fast. I didn't like running far. I hated long runs. I'd go run with Molly Huddle and Kim Smith when we were in Europe. And I just couldn't believe how fast they'd run for so long. And I was just like, (laughs) peace (laughs) out. (laughs) 40 minute easy jog is all I've got in me. So if you had told me then that I'd end up falling in love with the marathon, I just would have Oh, I would have laughed you out of town. Yeah. And in 16 years, I mean, at 39, and I know that age is just a number, but it's, it's just at a point in your career when you think, okay, maybe I'll retire when I'm 32 or 33. And, um, talk to me about, I've heard you talk about, you know, at this point you wanted to have kids and you wanted to get to that part of your life. And, now looking back, like what would you tell your 32-year-old self who was like, I'm ready for this and you might have thought I'm not going to be competing at a high level like that for a little while? Yeah, when I stepped off the track in 2012, so my my last race was the Olympic trials for the 1500 and I knew I wasn't going to make the Olympic team because I had not run the standard. I was just about a second off of it, but I, I won the Olympic trials, which felt like I was kind of leaving on my own terms. Um, but I stepped off the track completely ready to move on in my life. And I knew that was going to be my last race and I was ready to begin a, a career and I wanted to have kids, like you said. And quite frankly, I felt old at 32, still being on the track circuit. I thought like, <laughs> I'm, I'm in my thirties, like I'm not, it's time to move on. So, um, certainly then I didn't think eight years from now would I would be racing again. No. Um, you know, I always thought I would run and be active and I was excited also to try triathlon because I'd been intrigued by that sport for a few years since Graham had become a long distance triathlete and was swimming and biking and I go to his races and I thought it looked cool. So we just kind of embraced that new family lifestyle of we didn't have kids at the time. We'd go for bike rides together and we'd go to the pool and we'd travel to races. And then when I had my first son, um, 
I started to get a little bit, I just wanted like another outlet from parenting basically. And, and, and so got more into triathlon and, and again, my plan was not to come back to competitive running. I just sort of haphazardly got back into running because I didn't want to swim and bike again so much after my second child because it took up so much time. Yeah. So it was it was never a plan, and I think that was almost the best way because if this had been the plan, then um, I don't know if I would have enjoyed those moments and of of parenting and triathlon and and having some rest periods in my life. I think there's a lot to be said for not having a, such a detailed laid out plan. Um, and you got into triathlon. I mean, it's like, were, did you just start pursuing it? And if you were going to do it, you were going to go all in? I think partly, I just always feel like if you're going to, if you're going to train for a, an event then do your best to train for it and then do your best to race at it. And, and then I ended up being fairly strong in triathlon, not very good at swimming. That was always my total weakness, but, um, I loved biking and I loved running and that's the large portion of the race. And, um, yeah, it kind of came to me pretty quickly. I, I did one triathlon, one long course triathlon and had a performance that allowed me to get, take my pro card with, um, the Canadian Federation and then started having podium performances in the pro division. And it was like, Oh, this isn't so hard. Although it actually is really hard in a, <laughs> in a completely different way. I mean, the, the racing is grueling. It's way harder to me than a marathon to do a triathlon. It's way more exhausting, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I kind of enjoyed the challenge of it. Yeah. And I know that time is just so all over the place with triathlon, like long distance triathlon, depending on the course and the elements, yeah. but 857 was your first Ironman. That's so fast. Is that, were you expecting that kind of time? Um, not entirely, but my coach, I worked with, um, Matt Dixon for Purple Patch Fitness and, and Graham, my husband analyzed the fields a lot. So I think they thought I could do it. But, um, again, I think like I just embraced the, the process of training for the triathlon and doing what I, or the Ironman and doing what I was asked to do every day in practice and in my training. And then I went to the race and had kind of a really laid out, race plan that was based a lot on just pacing and patience and fueling. And I got out there in Arizona on that morning and it had a similar experience to my marathons where I just really loved being in the moment. And I felt like the time went by so quickly because you have, you have to think about these things about, am I eating enough? Am I drinking enough? Am I going the appropriate I'm not burning too many candles right now, but I'm going as fast as I can to sustain this. And what, what is the wind doing and where am I in the field? And I just feel like it's a really engrossing process to, to race those long distances. Yeah. The time on the bike is what gets me. It's so many miles on the bike. It's such a big chunk. So if you, you say you were the uh, weakest was your swim or you just, you're just catching people the whole entire rest of the race, aren't you? Uh, it takes a while actually, to be yeah. honest. Um, especially when I'm running in the pro division, yeah. um, because I can give up a fair amount of time in the swim. I mean, some of the swimmers, some of the women are very strong at swimming. They were collegiate level or like Olympic trials level swimmers. So I swam an hour or 61 minutes for Arizona, which for me was pretty good, but you have women who are swimming 12 minutes faster than me. Wow. yeah, And that's, a that's still a lot of time. Yeah, totally. That's a lot of time to make up even in a run. Like I have to, I have to run three hours if they're going to be a three twelve marathoner, assuming that our bikes are similar. 
Um, so I get off and I just have to bike and swim, bike and run so hard. Yeah. What's your, um, what's your fastest marathon in an Ironman? I think I went, so I only did two Ironman. I did Arizona when I went, went 8.57 and then I did one in Texas as well, just outside of Houston. And I think I was about 2.57. So, um, a totally different conditions. I mean, you're running them in the heat of the day, um, because you're getting, you're starting the marathon at three o'clock in the afternoon. So there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of heat and humidity in the air and it's a really terrible feeling starting an Ironman when you've already biked as hard as you can for five hours and swum as hard as you can for an hour. So your, your, your glycogen stores are down, you're dehydrated, your hip flexors are cramping. (laughs) It's really, uh, it makes the marathon seem easy. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Now just small baby disclaimer. I have done a half Ironman. Awesome. And my husband has done a full. So I don't know the extremes of the full, but I've witnessed, you know, like seeing my husband train for it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I remember, probably half of what you're describing, uh, just the feeling of running 13.1 after doing the, you know, the half Ironman. So, um, I sort of can kind of understand a little bit. Um, what did the track teach you that helped you in triathlon? And then what did triathlon teach you that helped you in, you know, the open marathon? Oh boy. Those are great questions. Um, I think, I think really, um, the key to all of it is, is honestly just being patient with yourself and being consistent and, and getting out every single day, if that's the plan and doing what you're asked to do and not overthinking it and not trying to add on and not trying to doubt yourself. It's working with a good coach that you have confidence in that says, okay, this is what you need to do today and not you know, a lot of people have the tendency of second guessing or wanting to go further or longer or on the opposite side, um, not doing what's asked to do. And if you can, if you can just really buy into that and then, um, and then staying in the moment, um, when you're racing and because we all have goals, whether they're, you know, a Boston qualifier or uh, breaking a time barrier or whatever that I think motivates us to get out the door and, and train and sign up for these races. But when it actually comes race time, the focus is not on what the results, the process, the, the focus is on what you have to do to be, to do your best. So staying in the moment and staying in the kilometer you're in or whatever, and fueling and pacing and not getting wrapped up in, in, you know, the minutia of, of the splits or getting discouraged if things aren't going well. Um, and that's what I love about it too, is it's very engrossing that way. Do you think you naturally, uh, lean towards that mindset or have you worked to make that a priority in your life? Um, I think a little of both. I think that's what, you know, got me into the sport initially in high school was just a love of running and a love of execution and not overthinking. And then I think I went through some rough years in track where I was so hung up on, and I alluded to it before, frustrated by chasing standards and getting into meets. And it became really results driven. Like I need to do this to get onto there and to get onto this team and feeling limited, um, by opportunities but being solely focused on the outcome and forgetting about enjoying the actual process or um, being in the race and racing instead of, you know, a lot of people like they, they're so focused and not myself included at the time on the time. And then that takes your energies away from actually being free to do what your body is trained to do and to do your best and to be more intuitive about your racing instead of so focused um, 
so cerebral about time. Does that make sense? Instead of like going by feel and going by intuition, you're, you're forcing it. Um, so, I mean, I've read a lot of sports science or sports psych in the years of being a runner and as a coach and, and this idea of being process oriented versus result oriented and how to, how to achieve your flow. And it's, it's hard because when it's going well, it's easy to do, but when it's not, you're fighting yourself. And, um, so I think it's a little of both. I think it's, you know, it has to be an ingrained attitude change and it has to be something that you work at as well. Hey everybody, I'm going to take a quick break and thank a sponsor for this episode. And that is Feels. Feels is a premium CBD company that helps you clear your head, helps you feel your best, and it's proven to reduce anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. I'm a user of Feels myself, and I can tell you that it works and it makes me feel really good. Now, I know CBD can sound confusing and you just wonder how much do I take? When do I take it? What's it for? Is it for anxiety or is it for sleep? And Feels is really good at educating you on when and how to use their product. They actually offer a free CBD hotline and tech support to help guide you through the discovery process. Now, what I learned when I started using Feels is that you take a certain dosage for how you want to feel. So I take a certain amount of CBD if I want to use it for clarity and energy. And then I take a different amount if I want to use it for sleep support. So there are different ways to use the product. You just have to do it the right way. And when you get a shipment of Feels, they send you a little pamphlet that tells you exactly how to use their product. Now, Feels is really easy to take. They send it to you in a little bottle that has a dropper and you just put it under your tongue and you'll feel the difference within minutes. It will naturally help reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. And the cool thing is it's premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. There's no high, there's no hangover or addiction, and it helps you feel better naturally. Feels has me feeling better and it can help you feel better too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash another and you'll get 50% off your order with free shipping. That's feels.com, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash another to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Again, F-E-A-L-S, feels.com slash another. All right, friends, I want to invite you to join me for the Donna Marathon that's coming up. It is so soon. It is Sunday, February 9th. There's a half marathon and a full marathon, a great weekend in Jacksonville, Florida, benefiting the Donna Foundation, which supports breast cancer research and also supports those living with the disease. This is my third year in a row going down for this race, and it is so much fun every single year. I'm going to be doing a meetup down there and put this on your list, if not for this year, for next year. Go to breastcancermarathon.com, and if you use the code Lindsay15, you can get 15% off your registration fee. It's a flat, fast course. It's beautiful, and it's a celebration throughout the entire weekend and the entire race. Again, go to breastcancermarathon.com and use the code Lindsay15 to get 15% off your registration. Mark your calendars for 2021 if you're not coming for 2020, but you should come for 2020. I'll be there. We're doing a meetup that Saturday. More details about the meetup coming soon. Make sure you're following me on social media because it will be posted over there. And I'll also announce exact date and time on next week's episode. 
All right, friends, let's enjoy the rest of my conversation with Melindy Elmore. What do you do um, to stay in the moment in, in week episodes in the marathon? I, I feel really fortunate that so far I haven't had a lot of mo- bad moments in the marathon. Wow. I, I said that last, yeah, I know, like last year I said at the halfway point, I went through a bit of a rough spot, but um, uh, then I actually took some more, I can take a lot of gels. I can, I think that was the one thing that triathlon did for my body is I can take on oh, a lot of calories. It, yeah. Yeah. So I took on some more calories and, I, and and that was something I learned from Matt, my coach is when your motivation gets low, just take more calories. That'll <laughs> help. Um, but yeah, I mean like but several, I think maybe I just am, am sort of predisposed to endurance events because I can get into a groove and feel good for a really long time. And even this marathon this past weekend, I kind of ran it the whole time going, this feels really good. Is this <laughs> supposed to feel so easy? Well, I'm with the pack I should be with and I shouldn't really take the lead. So I'll just sit here for a while still. And with about 4k to go, it started to feel like it was getting hard, but I never hit the wall and never was like, oh, I can't finish or this is terrible or I can't wait till this is over. And, and, um, was just like, I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> wow. That's like, that's a, that's a testimony for everybody to run a marathon. How do you get there though? It's just how you just trained your body to do what you needed to do and you have the, the right mindset, right? Yeah, I guess so. I have a really awesome team and I think that they've really helped me prepare really well for it and the training really helps. And then just like you said about earlier, um, going in with the mindset, I just, I really just try and focus on where I'm in the race and not get overwhelmed. Not like at one point I thought, Oh, this feels really easy. This is a good pace. I'll just keep doing this. And then I, I thought I can do this for a while. And then I looked down at my watch and thought, well, a while is like two more hours. So it better, it better be okay. Yeah. And so do you, I know you're very in tuned with your body and like you said, feeling it out in the moment, do you uh, clock watch at all? Like how often are you looking at your watch in the marathon? Oh yeah. I mean, I have my watch set for, for kilometers since okay. I'm Canadian and I train in kilometers. So I, I, I glance at it every split and every time my watch beeps, I'll glance down, but I try not to be super judgmental about it. Um, so it's like, okay, that was good. Okay. That was good. All right. Well, that was a little bit, a couple seconds slower, but that's, you know, I just think, oh, that's okay. Like it's going to average out in the way I want it to, as long as it's not atrocious, right? If it was like 20 seconds slower, but a few seconds here, there's no big deal. Um, and it's just kind of use it as feedback, um, but not as, um, as prescription as much like, oh, I must do this. And I think that's where people get in trouble when they've got a time goal in a marathon is they think, well, this is the time I want to run there for. This is the splits I have to have. And if they can't do it, then it becomes a judgment um, that they're not doing well instead of just letting the race come to them and letting the times come to them and also realizing that sometimes you're going to have a K where it might be hillier or windier or um, rougher road, or you might just have had a a slightly bad patch where you might be off a little bit and it's not the end of the day. You just get back on it. You seem to be an extremely joyful runner. Is that, um, is that just kind of ingrained in your soul? Yeah. Yeah. I loved running since as long as I can remember, like before I was a formal runner, just running around the neighborhood and running in the backyard. And in fact, actually any kind of racing, like if I, I did figure skating when I was little and my favorite part was the warm up because you could skate as fast as, as you wanted for the warm up. And, um, you know, with my friends, I think what I like to do even into being a teenager was 
challenging my friends to to run to the end of the road as fast as we could. You know, they probably hated me or <laughs> like, okay, you can come over and hang out with me, but this is what we're going to do today. We're going <laughs> to going to make up a triathlon in my backyard and <laughs> you're gonna turn have to work. into a competition and play. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to work really hard if you come to my backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look back and like, I was not into like sitting around and doing nails and, and, and look, reading magazines. Like you better, you better uh, be ready to sprint up the hill in my backyard. <laughs> How old are your boys? <laughs> and I did have friends, by the way, <laughs> I didn't scare them all away. You ended up running cross country with them in high school. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, my boys are, um, one and five. Okay. So one and five, but you ran Houston last year. Were, were you only like five months postpartum? He had just turned seven months when I ran to Houston. Okay. So he's like one and a half then. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. That's okay. I was just like, you were, I mean, so you're really postpartum at that point. You're under a year. So clearly there, it was obvious that there was a lot of gains to be made in that year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I only decided to do Houston about three months before. And in fact, between when he was born in June and when I decided to do Houston in September, I remember clearly going for a run with friends who were training for Chicago and they were asking me what I was going to do. And I was like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to enjoy being a mom and have Mm -hmm. no pressure to train and to get back into shape. And I was, you know, like I was still really out of shape and had a lot of baby weight and I didn't care about that. Um, I, I was just like, I just want to have fun with my kids and not feel, and that's partly why I decided not to go back to triathlon. Cause I felt like I was going to have to really work hard to get back into it. And I didn't want to do it at the time, but then a few more months went by and I had kept running and it was having fun running every day. And I just said to Graham one day, I, I think like a new bucket list would just be to do a marathon. So we went into me training for Houston, not to actually do exceptionally well. It was just for me to have the experience of doing one. But as we got closer to that race last year, things started to click as well. And we started to see some of my workouts come together. And we got to the point where we're like, you know what? I think that I could run under 235 just the way these last few sessions have gone. And and then uh, and then and I ran 232. And I finished that. And, and we realized that we had left a ton on the table in terms of training and preparation because it had only been you know, a couple months of running under my belt. And we knew that, you know, put another year in of, of considerable running and you're going to be at a different level. Oh yeah. And that was your first open marathon, right? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, were you breastfeeding at the time? Yes. And yeah, literally I finished the race and had to find him to nurse him because my children don't take bottles. Oh. And uh, yeah. So I was actually kind of stressed during the race because, you know, you leave the hotel in the morning to go get ready and you race and you realize like, I've now left this child for four hours. I sure mm-hmm. hope he's okay. He was fine. <laughs> <laughs> and you're filling up all the while while you run a marathon. <laughs> I know. And it's so amazing that the body, even under that kind of stress can still lactate and you yeah. can still have enough hydration left in your body to give the baby something. Now, when did you finish breastfeeding him? At one year. I okay. did a year for both my children. Okay. So tell us then, was it always going to be Houston again? What made you decide to do Houston for, you know, to go after that faster time? Yeah, no, it wasn't going to be Houston. I finished Houston last year and I loved it so much. I really actually wanted to do another marathon in the spring, but we decided that the best course of action would be to return to some shorter distance racing over the spring and summer, um, and get back to 
get my speed up a bit. Cause at the point of last year, if I ran under 3:30 per kilometer, that felt like a sprint. And, mm-hmm. and just for comparison's sake, I averaged 3:25 per kilometer for this last marathon. So, um, we knew I needed to get back into that kind of fitness where the faster paces didn't feel so hard. So I, I did some 10 K's on the road. Mostly I did a half marathon and I did a 5k on the track, which was my first track race since 2012, which was pretty amazing. Amazing as in it was really hard. And <laughs> did really... you feel like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I really felt old because then I'm like practically twice the age of some of the girls uh, in the race. Yeah. What race was it? <laughs> I did the the meet in LA, the sunset tour in, in July that ended up being a pretty hot field with people trying to get you know, world standards, last minute world standards. Okay. And it was a 10 K? No, it was a five. I've oh, never 5K. run a 10 K on the track. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. I bet for you, 1500 meter runner, 10 K would feel like forever on the track. Yes. Yes. Um, so at that point we wanted to do Toronto, Scotiabank waterfront Toronto marathon because the, the winner of Toronto with an Olympic standard. So two twenty nine thirty or top five in a gold label race would be guaranteed a spot on the Canadian Olympic team. That's the way our selection works. Um, with the other two spots being discretionary, which is the situation I'm in now will be mm. named at the end of May. Okay. Um, so when we saw the criteria come out for the selection for Tokyo, we said that made the most sense for me to go to Tokyo or to go to Toronto and try to win that race. So, I started my preparation for that at the end of August. The race was in, was October 20th. So we did, you know, had a 12 week build planned out and it went exceptionally well, perfectly, not a, everything to the T, not a bad day in the books, like really, really, really amazing until I went for a run 10 days before the race and I couldn't finish my run because my hamstring. Ah, 10 days. Ten days. I was on my taper. I'd done all my all my long runs. I had just finished a, an amazing workout three days prior. Oh my god! Not an ankle. Nothing had been tight or sore or indicated anything was the matter. And midway through a run, I was like, "Oh, I don't feel great." And then five minutes later, I was hobbling back to the car. <laughs> Remind me, when was Toronto supposed to be? Um, it was October twentieth. So okay. this happened on like October. 10th or something. Oh, and you've already gone through your entire trading cycle. Oh gosh. Okay. Then then what? (laughs) Well, and then it was actually a really amazing story because I took five days off. I saw physio. I did everything I could. I got acupuncture. I got massage. Um, I went for a run. I could run 30 seconds before it started to scream at me again. So basically I ended up having tendinopathy, um, of the semimembrosis tendon and the insertion of the tendon onto the, onto the, um, issue tuberosity and um which plagues a lot of runners it turns out as high high hamstring tendinopathy is what people refer to it as and it kind of got my sciatic nerve all inflamed so I couldn't run through it but a week before the race I was ready to pull out and um and at one last ditch effort my team my kind of coaching advisor team said can is there any way you can get an MRI and of course in Canada getting an MRI Uh. usually takes months yeah. Fortunately, I live in a small, a smallish, medium-sized city where I've grown up, and I know a lot of people, and I have a f- couple friends who are radiologists, so I sent them a message and said, is there any chance I can get an MRI, like, today? <laughs> and uh, my friend texted back and said, 11 a.m. tomorrow, there's a cancellation, be at the hospital. 
And it really snowballed. And it, it's, it's just an example, I think, of amazing healthcare when it works. Because in the short course of 48 hours, I saw a radiologist, I saw a sports med doctor, I saw a physiatrist, which is like physical medicine, who had a, done a fellowship in the US at, I don't remember which place, but basically one of the top fellowships for ultrasound. So I saw him and he did an ultrasound. He said, yeah, this is what you've got. Your tendon, tendons are fraying, basically. It's not, it's not the same as tendonitis, which is inflammation. And the, the, the initial um, reaction when you get an injury is that you need rest. But in fact, what you need is to strengthen the surrounding tendons to make them stronger, to, to take the load. And so I was referred to a bunch of, you know, peer reviewed scientific journals on how to actually properly um, rehab this, which was, like I said, the opposite of what I had thought. And so I started doing the rehab program and it went really well and took about two weeks where I could start to run again without pain. And I just went from 10 minutes and every day I'd run a few minutes more. And the whole thing took four weeks to be back to marathon training. Um, but knowing what I was dealing with was the amazing thing because 10 years prior with the navicular stress factor, it took me eight months to get a proper oh. diagnosis and proper plan of action, which is the most frustrating thing ever as an athlete because you're not doing the right thing. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. So here you are, um, looking at it as glass half full instead of uh, half empty. Cause you're, right, ha you're happy that you have the answers that you need to move forward. I felt really good about it. Yeah. And my physio said to me the day we decided, which was only three days before the race, because we were holding on hope right until Friday that, and I was going to fly Friday and hope it was okay. But and the race was Sunday and I realized when I went for a jog Friday, there was no way I could no run way. a marathon in two days. Um, and he said, you need to come up with a plan A and move on completely from this experience. Mm. And so we did. We sat down, my husband and I, we drafted out like eight different plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G options. Um, depending on how long it took me to get back to running. And thankfully, it took the least amount of time that we expected. We were on the really lucky end of that. And Houston was the first possible race that I could be ready for. So that was it tricky figuring out once you got healthy to be able to run again, like uh, that remainder amount of training, like you kind of had to jump back into a whole nother cycle, didn't you? How many weeks did you have once totally. you started running? Yeah. So I basically did a 12 week build. Well, I did 10 week build from the beginning of August to middle of October. And then I had four weeks of sort of rehab okay. and I, I cross trained. I did elliptical. Uh, I don't think I ever swam. No, didn't ever swim. I haven't gone, not gone back to the pool. <laughs> um, and really tried to hit the weight room and do those exercises. And so I was off for four weeks from middle of October to middle of November. But when I say off, I was actually not off. I was still running. I just couldn't do workouts and I couldn't do the volume, but I was still loading. And then middle of November to the middle of January. So I did another basically like we knew I needed a minimum of eight weeks to get back to where I was, but it, it came back so fast. Like really, I, I was able to finally towards the end of my, um, build before Toronto. My last workout was the one that indicated I was in about 224, 225 shape, but that was only one workout leading into Houston. There was basically like four weeks of workouts that were in that realm. So I think I kind of solidified my pace and it was almost, you know, it could have been, it could have been a good, it could have been the best outcome really in the end. Yeah. It sounds like you had more indications that you were going to do it. I mean, you could have walked away with a 226 in Toronto. Not that you want to be so time focused like we talked about, but 
um, you were there more so, it seems, for Houston. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Toronto was that the winner um, ha- was guaranteed the Olympic spot, where right, right now I still have to win May, but um, that's okay. Yeah. We're, we're good. Yeah, that's tough. So that's hard, though, and I think that a lot of people should really listen to that and, and realize that an injury doesn't mean that your fitness is gone because people get scared when they get injured and they're thinking, oh, my gosh, I did all that work for nothing, and that clearly wasn't true because you couldn't have gotten to where you were in eight weeks on its own. Well, really, honestly, I've run very little in the last eight years since 20, well, seven years from 2012 to 2019 as a triathlete, I did minimal running because I had to work on my swim and biking. And so I think people forget, um, how it's not what it's like these years, it's accumulation. It's year after year after year that, that is what ultimately you need and not just what you did last week or didn't do last week. And in the case of a a short-term injury, this is all endurance sport is, is like it really favors longevity, like longevity in the sport. So what's your biggest takeaway from, from Houston? Um, my biggest takeaway boy. Um, I think it was really cool to be up at the front end of the race this year. And we had the, the, the winner was off the front immediately, but I ran in the pack um, the whole race and I finished third, which was three seconds out of seconds and three seconds ahead of fourth. So the three of us kind of broke wow. away for about four K to go, but we were a pack of about eight until 35 kilometers. So it was super fun to just be racing, you know, international runners who had PBs coming in way faster than mine and kind of, you know, you start to realize like I had just read, um, Dina Castor's book last week and that really inspired me, but that mentality of, a feeling like you belong in the race and that you can compete against people from all over the world and the way I did in the track, but I didn't ever really see myself being like that in the marathon. And now I can't wait to go race again and, and maybe even put things on the line a bit more and maybe, um, just, I don't know, see, see what else I've got there. Do you think that being originally a 1500 meter runner, does that help you in that end you know, last 5k push or last. Oh yeah. Yeah. Were you yeah, totally, well, yeah. I had to sprint the last 200 meters. Actually, I was in fourth with half a mile to oh, go. Oh gosh. And I was, and I, you know, you kind of get to the point of a marathon where you don't really want to have to work any harder. <laughs> You're just kind of really ready to, you know, just run that pace and finish. Uh-huh. Um, and my, actually my last kilometer was my, my last kilometer was 312 and my last wow. 2k my last kilometer prior to that was 318. So we were moving and, but I was only a few feet behind third at that place when I hit 26 miles and I kind of did the quick math in my head. I'm like, okay, cause I, I work in kilometers, but I know that's like yeah, 300 yeah. meters or something like, okay, you were a 1500 meter runner. You got to <laughs> actually change gears now. Come on, let's go. And it was just more of a mental thing than a physical thing. Like, no, you, you can do this. You gotta, you gotta get up there. And then, and then I looked back and I was like, why didn't I go a little bit earlier and try for second? <laughs> <laughs> Always have those thoughts. Yeah. And that's what keeps us coming back from more, right? Yeah. Um, so tell everybody what the selection process, like, what do you, what are you waiting for? I know you have to wait till May, but like, what, what are, what's all riding on the line here? So right now, um, Dana Podorsky won the Olympic trials in Toronto in 229. And so she is guaranteed her spot. She's, she's uh, safe. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Lindsay Tessier, who's been in a fabulous story from Canada as well. She ran in Doha in, um, 
in September at the Worlds, uh-huh. and she finished ninth. So she's selectable because that's one of the standards. So top ten at Worlds or top ten in a, in a major will select you. It makes you eligible for selection. She's a really cool story too. She's 41. She's a teacher, works full time, um, came into the sport late in life and has had great success. Um, and then uh, Rachel Cliff set the Canadian record last year in March in Nagoya and she ran 226.54 there. That was kind of the time that you know I was trying to beat. Mm. Um, and she's um, a really good track slash distance runner so she ran the 10,000 at Pan Am Games as well so she kind of goes back and forth um so she's got the time I've got the time so there's four of us now who have the IAAF or I guess it's called World Athletics now standards to be selected by Canada but Canada's only saying the winner Dana has the spot and then in May they will decide the other two spots which is discretionary yeah do and it's actually a number of women who are strong who might still run run a, a performance that puts them in the selection pool between now and then in between Tokyo, Rotterdam, and Toronto Mar- or London marathons. Yeah, so it's just out of your hands. Do you? Yeah. Will you race again or no? I won't do another marathon again because I don't think that'll set me up for success in in Tokyo. And I'm I'm really hopeful that I'll have one in those two spots come May, and that I would like to focus on you know being top 10 or top eight in, in, uh, Japan. And that to be ready for that, I don't think doing two more marathon builds between now and August is the best decision. So going back again, like last year to doing some, some shorter road races or some track races will put me in a position to build my marathon build off of that strength. Yeah. Cause it's coming up. It's soon. Yeah, it's not that far off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, um, I've had a lot of requests for Lindsay to be on the show. So at some point I'm going to get, make that happen for sure. Yeah, for sure. Lindsay talking to Lindsay. Yeah, exactly. I actually just talked to Lindsay Flanagan yesterday. So oh. all the, all the Lindsay's on the podcast. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap up with the end of the podcast questions. We're all so excited for you. And um, this has been really fun to get to know your story a little bit deeper. Thank you. Um, this is not an end of the podcast question, but I, I'd love to ask you, what do you want your, you have boys, right? Both boys. I do. Okay. I'm also a boy mom. What? I see that. <laughs> <laughs> I love following you on Twitter because it's like, oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> the chaos. Oh yeah. Um, what do you want your boys to learn from seeing mom work so hard at something she loves so much? I think that's exactly it. Yeah. I just want them to find something that they love doing and that they want to work hard at. And I don't really care what it is as long as, you know, it's safe and legal. <laughs> <laughs> do they, do they realize <laughs> that they get the most out of themselves? I mean, I know your one and a half year old doesn't know anything. No, what's going on. Your five year old though, is he clued in like that mom's oh. really fast? Oh, totally. Yeah. He says to me, cause we're actually going to have a little party this weekend. Cause it's great. Cause sometimes you forget to stop and just mm. acknowledge these milestones and these things that, you know, I never thought I'd be the Canadian record holder and thinking of going to the Olympics again. So we're having a little party this weekend and my son keeps saying, so when is the party? How many days till the party? And we can have balloons because we're going to celebrate you being the fastest Canadian in the world, <laughs> mommy. <laughs> and then um, when we were going to Houston, he didn't come and he was really bummed because he thought his job would be to um, hand me all my bottles on course because that's what <laughs> I do in training. Oh, I love that. 
Yeah. The fast, the Canadian record. I don't even, I knew that you did that, but I don't know that we've even mentioned it in the episode yet. That's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is really. Yeah. And I just, it's, it's the sport with so much legacy and history behind it and so many amazing runners that have come through that is just, you know, such an honor to be part of that group. Yeah. You know, another Canadian I've had on the podcast, well, I've had Natasha Wodak on way back in the day, but, um, also, Krista Duchesne, do you ever oh. see her? Do you talk to her at all? Oh, yeah. Krista is amazing. I think that's one of the super cool things about this sport is that we've got this great community. So Krista, she's always reaching out to us and she's been so supportive. And I've been so inspired by her run and balancing, you know, her her career and her kids and just such a great attitude and such a such just a, an embracing person of the sport. So yeah, as soon as I ran, she had messaged me and, you know, vice versa. I was thrilled by her runs over the years as well. Oh, that's so good. Go Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Melindy, what is one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? So we would love to um, get a sprinter van one day and um, just travel all around, probably North America. We have friends who are actually taking seven to eight years to travel around the world. Um, I don't know that I can be with my husband that intensely, that <laughs> <laughs> nor he with me, so it's mutual. Um, but there's just so many amazing places, like go up to the Yukon and, and the Red Rocks and Southwest United States and into Mexico that I just am dying to check out. Wow, eight or nine years. Yeah, they sold everything. They, she okay. was a physician. She got rid of her license. They sold their house, all their possessions. And it's taken them two years to leave, to drive from where we are now to Columbia. Wow, That's do the they have kids? On. No. Okay, because I'm like trying to logistically think about that with kids. That would be tough. No, 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 no. Um, wow, that's really cool. Okay, fun. Uh, what is an accomplishment you're most proud of? I would say that this past weekend is something that I'm really proud of because it's, it was, it feels like it was literally a 25 year process to get to it. And, and, um, and it, it was, like I said earlier, not really planned and it happened. And so it just feels really cool to come full circle. How do you feel about turning 40? Well, now I'm excited about turning 40. (laughs) When do you turn 40? Um, March 13th. Okay. It's coming up. Mm-hmm. Does it yeah. feel, does it feel monumental at all? Like, does it scare you or I don't know. People always have weird feelings about decade birthdays. I know decade birthdays are weird. Um, my dad just turned 70 this year. We have we're 30 years apart and he's like, Oh, I'm so old now. I'm like, you're not old. As soon as you start thinking you're old is when you start being old. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, I feel rejuvenated and, and I feel like not very different than I did 10 years ago. So that's the plan. Just keep keep doing that. Except that, you know, the kids kind of tire you out sometimes, oh, but yeah. I think it's the kids, not the age. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. It's just a different kind of exhaustion too. And it, it definitely, yeah, for sure. Um, what's the best, most recent book you've read? So I was thinking about that cause I, I do really love to read. Um, but I, I mentioned, I just finished Dina's book and that was great. Mm-hmm. But from a, I really love, um, like historical fiction. So I just read the in-between world of Vikram Lal. Um, and it's about kind of his experience growing up in Kenya as a, uh, his, his, he was of Indian ancestry in the kind of colonial decolonization period of Africa and the, uh, corruption scandals, political changes. And I thought, and he's exiled actually to Canada at this point. So I thought it was a, a really cool book and, and I learned a lot about, um, I like learning about the world through, you know, through the stories of others. Mm, for sure. Yeah. What's a nonprofit you like to support? 
Um, locally, we've got um, the it's called Strong Kids Campaign, and it's run through the YMCA program. And I actually, my husband and I started triathlon about seven years ago, um, and we do some fundraising for this this charity, and it it, it allows children access to sports, um, both sports and childcare, and some services um, if they they couldn't otherwise afford it. Oh, that's awesome. Sports can be expensive. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, who is someone fun, motivating or, or inspiring that you'd like to have coffee, tea or cocktail with? I know you said someone, except that what I would love to do would to be get my whole Stanford cross country team back together again for a fun old time together. Cause we, they, it was just, they were such a huge part of my life for four years, but everyone has spread their wings and we never see each other anymore. And I would just love to get back together again. Oh, that sounds fun. Would you have coffee, tea or cocktail? Uh, probably cocktails. <laughs> that would be the most fun with them. <laughs> yeah. And then Melindy, what is your one message to send to the world? Um, I think we need to start looking after our world better and, and really paying attention to our impact on the environment and the climate change is, is a real, real um, problem that I, that I'm really nervous about for the future, not of many generations from now, but of, you know, my children's generation and my generation as well as how we treat people in the world. And it's just sort of shocking to me what, what we do still. Um, so I think treating people and the environment better is, is, is what I would love to see from everyone. Something we can focus on each and every day for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Melindy. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me and, and uh, looking forward to hearing, hearing your other stories from your other guests. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cool. Thanks, Lindsay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thanks, Melindy, for coming on the show and sharing your story. Make sure you're all following Melindy on Instagram. She is Melindy Elmore, M-A-L-I-N-D-I Elmore, E-L-M-O-R-E. You can also find her on Twitter where she is Melindy Elmore as well. You can find me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter at lindsayhine and you can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. All right. I'm so excited about this episode with Melindy and we have another Canadian athlete coming on the show. Natasha Wodak. She also just broke a Canadian record in the half marathon. So that's coming up as well. Really exciting. You all don't forget to check out our sponsors, lilytrotters.com. That's my favorite compression sock. Use the code ANOTHER to get 25% off regularly priced items. And then check out Feels, the CBD I have been using. Go to feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash another and become a member and get 50% off automatically taken on your first order with free shipping. That's feels.com slash another. Thank you so much for being here today and have a great Friday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.